to Pavant Guard. I'm Andrea Gazetta. I'm Katrina Davis. And I'm Jordan Lee Williams. And today we're covering Adult Animation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited, dude. I am really excited to talk to you all about this. Um I we kind of randomly discussed this in a past episode where something about cool world came up and i was like oh yeah i should do adult animation and it turned into this and i'm really glad it did because i have a lot of really um fun facts and i learned a lot on the way about something that i've loved my whole life so that's um, wonderful yeah so I guess, and also thank you everyone for your patience in advance for my first episode that I'm researching, Um, but it's going to be cool. So, um, so I read a lot of articles while researching, especially ones written during the pandemic that positioned an adola for cartoons as a lighthearted means of escapism and a nostalgic turn to a simpler time where fart jokes ruled and none of us understood crippling debt. Um, but I still contest that cartoons are not necessarily the warm, fuzzy trips down memory lane that people make them out to be, minus several standout episodes of Hey Arnold. Um, but, <laughs> I love Hey Arnold. Oh my god, Hey Arnold is my favorite. I follow Craig Barlin on Instagram, and he's constantly sharing great old artwork and sketches and music that people make. Like, there's a Hey Arnold album of all of the sick-ass jazz that's in it. Um, Yeah, I love that cartoon. So there's a bunch of stuff you can check out about that. Um, But yeah, so... But I, of course, I'm joking. There are lots of exceptions that actually do make us feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, But the childlike storylines are not what some make them out to be. Not only were cartoons originally made for adults, they never really stopped. Hell yeah, dude. So so I'll start at the beginning. Uh, First off, humans love pictures. So... We have evidence. This made me think of you, Jordan. Um, We have evidence (laughs) that humans have attempted to depict motion as far back as the Paleolithic period. Yeah. Um, Is is the horse in there? Do you have that picture? Oh, no, but I can see the horse you're talking about in my head. Um, (laughs) Like the red one that I feel like they bit off of for the beginning of Lion King. Um, But later, Shadow Play and the Magic Lantern circa 1659 projected popular shows um, using images on a screen moving as a result of manipulation by hand or minor mechanics. So like a kind of like a hand dial that would like spin shadows onto a wall. Oh yeah. Um, Oh yeah. I remember that. And that kind of, I think was the very early iteration of the stroboscopic disc made in 1833. Um, which is basically what introduced the principles of modern animation. So um, stroboscopic is um, the stroboscopic effect is a visual phenomenon caused by aliasing, which is basically a word that means making different signals indistinguishable that occurs when continuous or rotational or other cyclic, cyclic, 
cyclic i think that's right you know what i mean cyclic (laughs) cycles you know what i mean circles motion well that's the thing i feel like it would be cyclical but they say cyclic um motion is represented by a series of short or instantaneous samples as opposed to a continuous few so basically um a flip book anything that is things are moving so fast that they're running together oh hell yeah Um, i've made flip books yeah Right. So this accounts for the wagon wheel effect, um, so-called sometimes because of the spoked wheels, horse-drawn wagons that appeared to be turning backwards um, in these like old visuals. So between 1895 and 1820, there was a huge rise of the cinematic industry. Several different animation, different techniques were developed. Um, but we'll get into those in detail, like a little bit more. There's there's two different tech jumps in animation that we'll discuss. But um, the first fully animated cartoon was Phantasmagory, which is okay. the link that I sent you all in your email Ooh. earlier. It was created by Emil Cole. And um, his Emil's talent was first discovered at boarding school when he was seven. He grew up during the Franco-Prussian War and was influenced by the tradition, um, the traditional hand-drawn animation style. Okay. Uh, the film debuted in August 17th, uh, 1908 by the Gaumont Company in Paris and was named after a phantasmograph, um, a device that created shadow images on the wall that were in constant motion. So I think a phantasmograph might be a different spelling of the the stroboscopic disc because that's also called a phanacidoscope. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Hold oh, you know what's really funny? Okay, so when I was looking this up, it says the stroboscopic disc, and then it legit says better known as the fanaticoscope. And I was like, why would it be better known as this? Why would you pick this? <laughs> okay, fanaticoscope definitely sounds like something that the Wizard of Oz made up. It sounds like another one of his inventions, oh, you know? Like, yeah. Just like. the, the It's ag- okay, so it's the phenakistoscope. I'll put a picture in oh it too, because the picture is actually pretty cool. Okay. The picture of it flat <laughs> makes you understand what it is, because it's like a wheel of these like, um, almost like jesters, like walking jesters. Okay. And they're like spinning around this circle thing. Uh, but yeah, I don't know why that's the word it's more known by. <laughs> it's kind of the idea of, um, do you guys know those old photo, like the, the, the projectors where it like does the little click and then it's, it actually has a physical slide Yes, that it. Yeah, like a, so, a Visograph thing, like the ones that had Jim and the holograms on them. Uh, I like where you like click it and the and it changes the slide, but it's telling a story. Well, so it, they used to be um, that that's just how you showed your photos. Like you got these slides, um, and you could fill a little thing, but you click it and it doesn't necessarily tell a story. It's just like the photos. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how dads used to show yeah. off like yes. family vacation photos. <laughs> yes, Got it. Exactly. Yes, so yes, yes. But it would be the same kind of concept where it's a light in it that shines through the image, but it's just moving faster than those old picture projectors. Right? Got it. Right. Yeah. Yes, that is the, um, the idea of 
the stroboscopic effect is yes pictures if those pictures were all connected them spinning so much that the aliasing happens in your brain slash eyes and they become one moving thing yes yes but it has to be something that's like a loop right for it to like make sense like the horse running or like this idea of sort of a contiguous motion because you can't right you can't like you, there's not enough frames to illustrate more complex ideas, right? Right. Okay, so I'm glad you said that because speaking of frames, um, so The Phantasmagory is a film that depicts a stick man dressed as a traditional clown morphing flu- fluidly into boxes, flowers, interacting with animals and other figures. Uh, he pulls away the layers of a woman's hat at one point. Um, wow. There are several decapitations that don't seem what? to bother anyone. Okay. And, but it's like trippy-ish. So kind of what you were just um, describing, Andrea, in terms of how fluid they are and they all um, chain, uh, all run into each other that way. It yeah. took five months to make the film from 700 drawings for a oh one minute, 20 second film. So that's how many slides he had to use to make it look as fluid as it ended up looking. Um, And he he created it using an illuminated glass plate and a pen on paper drawings that are double exposed for a negative film effect. So that's why it's on black with the white. Right. That makes so much sense. Um, So the... White on Black was inspired by J. Stuart Blackton, a British-American silent film producer who hung out with Thomas Edison and accidentally created stop-motion animation in his movie The Enchanted Drawing, which is a silent film. Uh, It's uh, one of the first standard silent films to include animated sequences with stop-motion animation and audio effects. And Phantasmagory was the first fully animated to use illustrative techniques. Um, and the one, oh yeah, cause I didn't, I forgot to send you guys too, but I can send it to you afterwards. The Stuart Blackton one is, it's pretty silly. It's like a guy painting, uh, like a, what would have been back then, like a traditional hobo kind of guy with like his little stovepipe hat to the side and stuff like this. And then he will take his, he draws wine and then the wine becomes a real bottle that he like cuts and pops into real wine. And then the picture behind him turns sad because he takes his wine away. It's like a silly little story about a drawing man. Um, about a very drunk drawing man. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun short tale about animated alcoholism. Um, (laughs) clowns got problems man yeah honestly clowns are sad it's the one real takeaway of this episode Um, is this clown my dad what's happening (laughs) so cole has been deemed the father of animation in most you know Uh, circles and became Europe's first cartoon filmmaker. He used puppets and cutouts to create figures in 250 films between 1908 and 1923. Um, Only 37 of those films survive today in archives, but he has inspired many animators that we will talk about later. Okay. Um, So in 1911, Successful newspaper cartoonist Windsor McRae released a film of his most popular character, Little Nemo. In 1914, the film 
um, Gertie the Dinosaur featured an early example of character development drawn animation and was also the first film to combine live action footage with animation, which kind of makes me think it's like a little bit closer to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay. Okay. So at this point in history, animation basically has two categories. It's like fun, loving, cheeky, adult humor and political agenda. So the the first animated feature film um, was El Apostol by Querino Cristiani, which I should have practiced earlier because I'm going to talk about him for a minute. Um, But I can say Cristiani (laughs) from here on out. Um, He uh, the film was released on November 9th, 1917 in Argentina. And this successful seven 70 minute satire utilized a cardboard cutout technique reportedly created with 58,000 frames at 14 frames per second. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, this guy's hardcore. So That's his third insane. free, his, yeah, his third free, uh, feature, um, Palu- Paludopolis, Paludopolis premiered on September eighteenth, nineteen thirty one, in Buen- Buenos Aires, um, with Vitaphone sound on and desynchronized soundtrack. So that was also, I think, um, kind I don't of know a what new. That means. <laughs> <laughs> well what? for this it just means the like the old timey kind hold on it's a um sound motion picture with synchronized sound so it just had sound to go with it as opposed to a silent film oh okay but so they're creating like a soundtrack yes there's a soundtrack that basically was like start the movie play the music and these two things go together mm, okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with a Vitaphone, a Vitaphone, I think, is the, oh, I wanted to say that it was the kind with, like, the big bugly, like, you know what I mean? Like, how an yeah. old record player would have, but I don't think it's that. I think it just, I just want it to be that. But, <laughs> but basically, this was a full-length animated feature film that also had sound to go with it, and it was received uh, positively by critics, but did not become a hit. As in, um, because it was an economic fiasco, which I think I do also have some information on. Um, but he could no longer make a career with animation in Argentina because of everything that was happen- happening politically. So, like the rise of fascism? <laughs> right. Well, that's what his film was about. Like, he was yeah. crushing making these films to speak his mind, and people loved them, but they were going insanely over budget. Um, he could, he received no uh, press coverage, and they had poor public attendance. At one point, it, um, one of his, oh, his next feature. Or I don't know if it was his next because this is 1918, but one of his features, Sin Dehar Rastros, was confiscated by police for diplomatic reasons, and Damn. none of the, none of his feature films survived. Wow. Uh, yeah. So when Walt Disney came to Argentina as part of his Latin American research tour, Cristiani showed his films to him and then sent him to cartoonist Melina Campos. Um, a source of one of the scenes in one of his other films and Cristiani has been called the man who anticipated Disney. That's just like a fun fact. So this is, I thought this was later. This is before the rise of fascism in Argentina, right? So this is more like 
places are trying to be more democratic. Is that what was happening politically at this time? Well, in 1918, the one that was confiscated, it sounds like they wanted to kind of hush things up. And then the one in 31 was received Mm. positively by critics and people actually kind of got to see. Okay. Um, But, and I I don't know if I might've taken out or if it's just in another area where I talk about finances or something, but he had a lot of financial issues with getting these films finished and um, things like that because of things that were happening politically and war wise, like definitely getting in the way of getting projects done and able for people to be seen. Um, But I can't remember if I left that information in. Um, So between 1915, and this is all just me kind of discussing these different political um, animations for a second, but his is more um, significant and we'll kind of touch on different parts of it later on. But also between 1915 and 1916, Dudley Buxton um, and Anson Dyer produced a series of 26 topical cartoons during World War One, utilizing ma- uh, mainly cutout animation. The episodes including the shelling of Scarborough by German battleships and the sinking of the Lusitania. What's cutout um, animation? What is that? Um, it's the same thing that it sounds like Christiani used, which I think means the figures themselves are made out of cutout, and that's what they're using on another background to make it move. So I think the cutouts oh. are the thing that's being continuous instead of a drawing. So almost like more like claymation where you have like but with cutouts, paper cutout. That's what I'm imagining, yes. Okay. Hold on. But let me see. Um, I'll see if I can verify that later. But yes, that's what I'm imagining. Once you start using something to promote more, uh, promote war, you know it's going to get some new tech. So the transparent celluloid process uh, rose to popularity during the 1910s, which made animation a lot more efficient. It was the dominant technique throughout most of the 20th century and became known as traditional animation. So celluloid is what we know is like the transparent paper mm, that helps yeah. you kind of see where you're going and you're layering these things over each so other. So that's like right. Disney where you have these like elaborate yes. painted backgrounds and then the figures move in that space what we've yeah what we've kind of seen i feel like our generation has seen more behind the scenes things of people drawing it is this uh a version of this process well so and so when if you haven't seen some of those behind the scenes things what they do is they have a camera set up sort of like above a table and then they'll have like the background for whatever scene and then they'll lay these transparent cells that only have the figures painted on them and like take a photo put a new cell on take a photo put a new cell on and then they can like zoom that camera in to do like a like a fade in or like to zoom in and out of that background space but basically like the background is the part that is like detail painted and then the foreground is like well actually at this point everything is being redrawn and it's just the fact that you can see the fact that it's mildly transparent is the uh-huh. technology, but oh, wow. we're going to talk more about that later also. Okay. Um, so around 1913, uh, Raoul Barr uh, developed the peg system, which made it easier to align drawings by perforating two holes below each drawing and pl- pa- placing them on two fixed pins. It's also called a slash and tear technique 
to not have to draw the complete background or other motionless parts for every frame. So this okay. is what is what you were talking about. Okay. So it keeps the background in place and then you're able to have other parts of the uh, image move. Yep. So three years later, Barr created what Andrea just described. Wow. Um, okay. They make jokes to allude to this technique in old cartoons, like when you see the page slipping away from a character or see them realize that the background isn't changing behind them. If either of you know what I'm talking about in like yeah. an old Bugs Bunny where they yeah. would like keep running and then all of a sudden they stop and realize they've passed the same point. Um <laughs> So it's safe to say at this point, animation is, you know, getting a little bit of attention. You can sense that people with innovation and or fun see the value in it as a form of entertainment. And this is when the floodgates really open. Newspaper tycoon and overall sleazebag William Randolph Hearst poached a bunch <laughs> of animators. <laughs> Um, poached a bunch of animators from another studio at one point trying to get his beak wet in the game uh when walt disney was 19 he was experimenting with drawn animation techniques in his parents garage like some kind of animation apple startup right and eventually oh moved to, <laughs> and eventually moved to hollywood developing mickey mouse in 1928 animated cartoon character bosco was created in 1927 um uh, by Hugh Herman and Rudolph Ising specifically for talkies or films with audible dialogue instead of text plates. Wait, so, so these are just a few. Walt Disney could actually animate. I didn't know that. I thought he was just like oh, yeah. the the like money guy, you know, like the no. Businessman. He at least at least at the start he was basically working as an anim as an animator at another studio wanting to try these new techniques that he was figuring out and they were like yeah we don't have the bandwidth or funds to like test run your stuff right now and he just <laughs> kind of eventually went off on his own with two other guys that used to work there i'm gonna start my own uh, business fuck you guys yeah Ooh, yeah Okay, that's he cool. He basically, yeah. So not to mention the second surge of technological advances in the 1930s, including two-strip color, technicolor, and uh, multi-plane cameras. Now we're going to get into some stars. So after the addition of sound and color were a huge success, other studios followed. Disney was the first one to do it um, in... Um, some of the things we're going to discuss in a minute. So initially, music and songs were the focus of uh, many things. So it was all about the music. There were silly symphonies, merry melodies, Looney Tunes. All of that was about them making silly songs and characters um, that were just singing the songs. But then it became apparent to them that people were recognizing the characters and that those were what really stuck with audiences. So Mickey oh. Mouse. So originally the focus was like the, the audio quality. And then they're like, well, let's just like put some characters or whatever. It was like, yeah, like I like to sing uh, about the moon and the tuna. Like, I feel like it was just oh. them thinking that these little catchy things were going to be what people focused on. And then they started liking the animals. Mm -hmm. um, I looked it up because Merry Melodies, I used to watch those with my mom. Oh, yeah. I definitely remember Merry Melodies, not as much as Looney Tunes, but they were still around. Um, yeah. So. Mickey Mouse had been the first cartoon superstar to surpass Felix the Cat, but soon dozens and um, dozens more followed, many remaining popular for decades. Okay. So 
Um, Bob Clampett designed Porky Pig in 1935 and Daffy Duck in 37. He was responsible for much of much of the energetic animation and humor associated with the Looney Tunes series. And in the 1930s, um, saw the early not yet named ideas for Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny and Sylvester the Cat. Okay. So this is when all of these other, um, you know, characters are coming up. Uh, so Disney would later introduce characters to the Mickey Mouse universe, like Minnie in 1928, Pluto in 1930, Goofy in 1932, and a character that would soon become a new favorite, Donald Duck, who we're going to talk about um, more in a second, too, because they definitely have their place in more war stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah. this is completely <laughs> so, a tangent, but yeah, tangent away. It's it's related to Donald Duck. Do you guys have you guys ever been around like weird kids, like creepy toddlers, the kind that just they have yes. weird interests and then they just come across very creepy? Because mm-hmm. my friend, I was that her, toddler, but sure. <laughs> when my friend's son was about a year and a half, two years old. He would only talk in the Donald Duck voice. And he was also just terrifying. So he would just come around the corner and be like, hello. It was awful. It and was that, like, so funny. Wah, 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 wah. Yes, it was so funny and fucked up constantly. And it was the only way that he would talk to you. Wow, okay, I well. don't hate that. Something happened to that kid. I'm just saying, like... <laughs> I was weird because trauma. It didn't come from nowhere. So I'm just, I don't know. Oh, no. At that age, had you're a just weird. I a kid that did that. <laughs> like, you had, a, you had a crush old, on a kid that did weird. that? Yes. No, you're definitely, there's definitely kids that are just like, oh, I like doing this. And then you do it in front of other kids. And they're the ones that tell you it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I absolutely had a crush on a little blonde boy that definitely could talk with that voice. Um, oh my God. But we would like coax him to do it. Like we would be like, please do the Donald Duck voice. Um, <laughs> but no, that is a totally acceptable a, a totally acceptable tangent because we are, I just realized when it is, it's not quite yet, but Donald's going to come back. So okay. um, Disney realized that he had some set had success in animated films that had emotionally gripping stories. So he developed a story department where storyboard artists separate from the animators would focus on development of the story alone, which proved its worth when Disney released um, its first animated short to feature well-developed characters in 1933, The Three Little Pigs. Oh, okay. Oh. When it became known that Disney was working on feature length animation, critics regularly, uh, they totally made fun of him. They thought it was the dumbest idea ever. They called uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves Disney's Folly because they thought that audiences, (laughs) wait till you hear why, believing the audiences could, couldn't stand the, uh, expected bright colors and jokes for such a long time. Like no one's going to sit for a whole movie and watch cartoons and jokes that long. That was why they thought it was going to be a failure. That's, That's so such funny. a hilarious premise too. Cause it's just like now, like we have, In you hindsight. know, we have the internet, you know, like it's just like, yes. 
We're addicted to our phones. Literally, it is addictive. Yeah. So just what it's are you nothing about? but bright colors and uh, p- pictures. And we just did a what at least five minute Patreon rant on the Marvel universe. So the idea that in hindsight, they were like, no one's going to watch bright colors and cartoon jokes for that long is great. Because on December 21st, 1932nd, it premiered and became a worldwide success. Oh, um, right so before the seven Christmas too? Like, yeah. It's like, oh, what are we going to do with the kids? Let's go see the Snow White movie, which has always been Disney's like business plan. Right, and I don't know how much movies cost in 1937, but yeah, anybody with a quarter to spare probably took their little girl and like her tiny mink stole to go see Snow White <laughs> and the Seven Dwarves. And her upsettingly realistic doll. That's who I'm imagining, yes. That's who I'm imagining could afford to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on this Christmas This doll was made with 37. human hair, and she <laughs> is beautiful. Uh, I love your hat, little girl. Thank you. It's made from the pole. so there's also new animation techniques in snow white and the seven dwarves fleischer developed an animation technique called rotoscoping using snow white and the seven dwarves um developed by that thing that you use to get the hair out of your tub that's a rotorooter okay different different (laughs) i was like hold on a second that is 100% a rotorooter. That is for hair clogs. Rotoscoping is the animation technique. Um, another, It's another version of the traceover animation. Okay. So okay. it's done frame by frame to produce realistic action. Okay. I feel like I have seen a behind the scenes of the dwarves going over the bridge. Mm. you know in hi-ho when they're walking across the bridge in a line i don't know why that's sticking out in my head but that may be an example of this behind the scenes from um aurora and the prince what movie is that sleeping beauty Beauty, Beauty. yeah, I love. Yeah, I've seen the the actual because they had actors like dressed up like the characters, and so it's them. I've seen the the behind the scenes of that first dance in the woods. It's very sweet. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So, so Fleischer, which is one of, um, I think he split off when Disney did, but made Fleischer Studios. So okay. he developed Dis- uh, followed Disney's example with Gulliver- Gulliver's Travels in 1939, but it was only a minor success. So like the technique was used in Snow White, it blew up. He made Gulliver's Travels and people were like, meh. But the technique <laughs> um, that's used in Snow White is his. Oh, wow. So, okay. so now we're going to start talking about some fun stuff. Um pre-haze code so the earliest known instance of censorship and animation occurred when the censorship board of pennsylvania requested that references to bootlegging be removed from walt disney's 1945 short or 1925 short alice solves a puzzle um okay. so they were hello. like so disney was like edgy a long time ago yeah that's interesting hmm. well here's the thing i feel like he was one of the first ones to get caught Because Mm. there was definitely dirty stuff or this is maybe just a standout example because there 
um, removing images of bootlegging and prohibition across the board are some of the earliest requests from people is just, Hey, booze is still illegal. Stop showing this dog getting wasted. That is like a big, (laughs) a big first across the board. But I can see Disney getting so much visibility that he's one of the first, you know, official ones or something. Yeah, as someone from the city of Milwaukee whose entire personality is alcohol, it's pretty clear to understand why prohibition didn't work out. Because it's just woven into the fabric of our society. Like, you can't... Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, so much of these old things is just like, I kind of... We've already probably seen it, internalized it, and moved on. But when I went back and looked at him, it was like, oh, yeah, it's just various dogs getting hammered. That's what most, (laughs) at some point, a dog is going to find a jug with three X's on it and go to fucking town like that. (laughs) It's going to be at least a B story. Um, So... One of the earliest animated pornographic films was Ever Ready Harton in Buried Treasure, produced circa 1928. It has often been suggested that the film was produced for a private party in honor of Windsor McKay, the guy that I mentioned earlier that was uh, created some of the earlier characters. Um, But that I don't know if that's true or not. So the 1929 Ever Ready Harton film depicts the title character, which is a, a friendly gentleman, a friendly gentleman with an enormous penis, uh, going <laughs> increase, going in, going to increasingly absurd lengths to satisfy his need for orgasm, and is believe, um, and it's like it's pre. It says one of the other ones said a prehensile penis because it does seem to kind of like wave around and like go out of frame without him and pick things up and do all sorts of things he like so uh, it's, fucks a bunch of different stuff in it there it's, it's weird <laughs> so it's like an elephant's trunk type yes, of it like is like a hilariously penis. large dick just like on the hunt all right um, so i looked come. it up and one of the stills is a crab pinching the tip what is happening here that's what i'm saying like he's <laughs> on the search for an <laughs> orgasm and he it gets into some weird shit along the, the way like oh in this still his dick is like the balls are walking like it is by itself <laughs> it is cruising through <laughs> it's not even about him anymore yeah it's hilarious because it's like when you think about south park and you think about how upset people got about south park and then just remembering that like this is where we started. It's fine. You know, like, yes, <laughs> this has always been what we are and who we are. That's amazing. Yes. And I feel like it's we've always had, um, you know, people that were getting their feathers ruffled about it, making people hide it, because according to Carl F. Cohen's 1998 book, Forbidden Animation, Censored Cartoons and Blacklisted Animators in America, The film was rumored to be developed in Cuba years after it was completed, but because no lab in New York City would process the film. Oh, my (laughs) God. So, like, the rumor is that they finished it forever, and it took so long to get anyone that looked at it to be like, I'm not even going to use equipment to make this visible to other people. That's how (laughs) offended they were. This reminds me of the time when I was in high school... My mom uh, wanted, we we were on a road trip to Southern Illinois 
and to go to the state fair because I was in 4-H. It's a whole thing, whatever. Uh, but my mom was like, I want to buy the new Eminem album. And I was like, okay. So we stopped at a Walmart and they're like, we don't sell that sinful trash. I was like, you're a Walmart. You literally murder people. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's so funny. But I love that you just got your mom got judged as by a Walmart employee for trying to expand her horizons <laughs> musically. Absolutely. That's how Southern Illinois does, man. <laughs> um, so, again, in terms of um, censoring, Disney had a few mildly risque shorts that dealt with themes of alcohol and prohibition as well as some sexuality. Uh, various Disney shorts, which I feel like you all will remember this as a Disney short trope was just like making a gag out of female animals having issues with their underpants. <laughs> like there's oh, always yeah. someone like falling and slowly losing their clothes or their clothes get sucked into a vacuum. It's always somebody getting caught in polka dot bloomers is that's what, yes. that was what he was getting guff for at the time. It's a hilarious <laughs> lack of consensual nudity. Yeah. You know how women be losing their drawers via vacuum at all times. Yeah, just constantly being like, oh, no. And then, like, the little, like, the exclamation lines of, like, blinking around their body while they cross their arms over their own body to, like, <laughs> to create Cover some sort up. of decency. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yes. It's basically all of that is what he was getting shit for. Between that and drunk dogs, those were, like, <laughs> what he was getting his finger wagged for. <laughs> Um, so every time you say drunk dogs, it makes me laugh. It's true. Um, so a comic book award-winning writer, Michael Tisserand, would later argue that animations were quote adult swims in the early days of American animation. Wait, what's an adult swim mean? Yeah, exactly. Wait, did, I, You'll did I misunderstand, or is that where Adult Swim comes from? I mean, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, okay. But because this guy is kind of very respected in his opinion in this space, but that's exactly why I put this quote in here because I think that is where it came from because that is what the beginning of Adult Swim was. If anyone watched Adult Swim in like, I don't know, maybe the early 2000s, it was when it first started. The first things were, everybody get out of the pool, Adult Swim. And it was like old b-roll of people in the 50s doing laps and it was the joke of like kids out of the pool it's time oh, for us now at like 10 o'clock wow. so i do think that they got it from this quote from this man um That's which amazing. made me really happy when i read it um, that's so cool i had no like i never put that together that that is what that was from Oh, yes, because they stopped doing it. But when they first started Adult Swim, that's how you knew it was coming on. It was like legit old 50s B-roll, like probably free stock footage of like dudes in swim caps in a pool, diving in a pool. And it was that voiceover of what would be like a lifeguard calling for <laughs> Adult Swim. It was sick. Um that's so awesome. yeah, I do think that's where they got this. So this will be a thread that I want everyone listening to continue to think about as we go into what I'm about to go into with censorship. But um, 
in terms of his quote, uh, uh, I'll just repeat it for what I'm about to say next. Adult yes, swims please. in the early eight. Um, oh, animations were adult swims in the early days of American animation with shapes that were hand drawn, frolicking and not behaving, quote unquote, correctly before audience members who reacted with shock at this new life they were witnessing. Um, so I think that that is uh going to be important for what I'm going to talk about next in terms of censorship because of the power that cartoons have. You can make cartoons do things that you wouldn't dare watch a live human do in front of you with the same reaction. The inhibition is lowered because you're put in a different reality, which can actually be a mirror to your um, own more than we realize. Right. Because uh, if you saw a dog getting drunk, you'd be really upset. <laughs> but if you see it in a cartoon, it's fine. <laughs> It's adorable and kind of funny. But like when Chewie gets drunk, when I leave him alone for too long, people get upset with me. But when you draw yeah, him Yeah, if you did drunk. a video of Chewie getting drunk, you would get flagged and lose so many followers. <laughs> but not my But if I animate it, then it's cool. We're going to test it uh cuz Andrea has Chewie, so <laughs> We're going to get that dog um, drunk. I did give him a stress treat, which is supposed to make him more chilled out. And I did not initially read the bag. And I gave him three stress treats in one day. And I read the bag and I'm only supposed to give him one a day. But luckily <laughs> it had almost no effect. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask That's if you gave him treat. that stress treat today. Because I've been hearing him bark all day. <laughs> He's very concerned. It all, it's only because I've started talking and because he's not drunk enough yet. So that's the <laughs> real problem. Once he finishes that first beer, he'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so they had these kind of one-off instances of these different, like the censorship that Walt Disney was uh, fell victim to was the... Um, city of Pittsburgh, these kind of like one-off groups or churches or people writing letters and complaining before. But after the Wall Street crash of 1929, things weren't so fun anymore. Uh, the, excess, the excess and extravagance of the jazz era was simply not in the budget and the harsh reality of an economic downturn left audiences literally and figuratively depressed. So... At the height of the depression between 1930 and 1934, with less money in people's pockets for moviegoing, stu studios tried luring audiences in with salacious films featuring sex, violence, drinking, and the, um, and the grotesque. Like Babyface, Scarface, Freaks, um, with storylines ref that reflected glamorous gangsters, sexually liberated women, and the class struggle. Hell so yeah, that's kind dude. Of where entertainment started going. Um, the counter to this culture was personified by the president of the motion, motion picture producers and distributors of America, or the MPPDA at the time, um, William H. Hayes. So this all around stick in the mud uh, gets a lot of credit for just kind of, oh, he was the chairman of this committee. Like, he just kind of gets credit for being in charge of it and people move on. This dude is sleazy as all get out. So oh. he was he was chairman before he found his uh, slinked his way into motion picture legitimacy. Uh, is he, he a, the dick from the last cartoon we were talking about? 
No, 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 no. Oh, but his, the code is his. The code is his. Yes, we are talking about the man who the code is named after. Yes. Okay. Is that what you meant? I'm sorry. Well, I just meant metaphorically. He sounds like a slinky dick. Oh, no. He. <laughs> oh, you thought he. Stop. I just realized what you were saying. I'm so dumb. <laughs> I'm cutting all of this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am. Uh, it's, I was so confused. Um, but, yeah, no, this guy, this guy wishes he was that guy. He, if he was that guy, he would be a lot more fun. Um, he was, before he was president of the MPPDA, he was chairman of the Republican National Committee um, and managed President Warren G. Harding's presidential cap campaign. Okay. Um, as a thank you, after he won, uh, Harding made him postmaster general, a position that he would later abuse as an accomplice in the Teapot Dome scandal. So. <gasps> oh, shit. Tea straight from the pot, motherfuckers. <laughs> I so, love tea. What you would usually hear about the Teapot Dome scandal is that Warren G. Harding, secretary to the interior, Albert Fall, gave illegal exclusive use of teapot oil reserves to oil man and sleazeball Harry F. Sinclair. See why I was thought you were confused? Harry F. William H. There's just a bunch of dudes in their middle <laughs> initials. Um, Sinclair would later take the fall for fall and a lot of other people um, that he would pay off for these faulty oil reserve leases that were immediately deemed fraudulent by Congress. So basically, mm. Fall gave this guy on the low, like, okay, everyone is supposed to be able to use these oil reserves, but I'm just going to let you use them. And as a thank you, this dude just started paying people off with all the extra money he was making and to get other favors. So... Warren G. Harding was never found guilty of any wrongdoing, but the stress would take a toll on his health and he would pass away before the court proceedings finished in office. Um, wow. So his um, Hayes would testify twice in the proceedings, one stating that he received seventy five thousand dollars from Sinclair that was on the books. Um, after Sinclair was caught. Two years later, he was brought back to testify and magically remembered that there was another $100,000 he received from Sinclair once they found the bonds to prove it. And when he was questioned about it, he said they didn't ask about bonds the first time. Amazing. (laughs) Classic sleazeball. So it's basically like if someone gave you $75,000 that was legal, gave you like $100,000 in stocks, and then when you testified again, you were like, well, I didn't count the stocks as money, even though you know damn well what they were asking about. Absolutely. (laughs) So right after he testified the second time where he actually, you know, admitted fault in court he conveniently resigned his cabinet position um and became chairman of the motion picture producers and distributors of america so he basically took a bunch of payoffs killed this president with stress and then was like you know what i get to tell people what to do with movies like just (laughs) over. yeah it seems about right we call it failing up (laughs) But honestly, where's a better fa- place to hide from scandal than Hollywood? Like, I get Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Especially in this era. I mean, and time is a you, flat circle. Oh. 
Oh my God. <laughs> as far as what we would still feel today about people like this, where you're like, okay, well, you know, whatever. He ran off and hid in another job. He'll eventually get his. He began his new job at a $35,000 annual salary, um, which would be equivalent to $550,000 um, a year now, or in 2020. Mm-hmm. So he went to a job that already had a bonker salary. So yeah. our money, he was supposed to get 500000 a year, which is 35000 their money. He ended up getting what is speculated between 100000 and $150,000 a year to do Jeez. this job. Wow. Okay. That's and I still, think that is, wow. sign me up, bro. And I think that he just came in. He slinked in at the perfect time because I think that this would have been just like a little quiet committee that handled like the most obscene and salacious. But because of some stuff that I'm about to mention, they probably got a lot more funding and attention. So the goal of the organization or because this is new, but like the version of it before what he took over. So the goal of the organization was to improve the image of the movie industry in the wake of the scandal surrounding the alleged rape and murder of model and actress Virginia Rapp of um, a film star associated with Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle who was uh, accused but never convicted that story is just so sad because he absolutely did not do it and people were so fucking cruel to him and he was just like blackout drunk and in the wrong place at the wrong time and people exactly. have wild parties. But yeah, but in terms of what it did for him and Hollywood, he is he and that scandal are blamed with kind of um showing the general public that all of this bright fuzzy stuff actually has a darkness to it. So yes. they hired Hayes to apparent to quote unquote clean up the pictures. And um, the public relations ploy was what he basically used uh, to save his own credentials and have people forget about the Teapot Dome scandal and be like, oh, no, I'm just, uh, you know, this nice guy that hangs out with Presbyterian deacons to talk about what should be on TV for your children. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. And everyone was (laughs) just like, he's just a white dude with a middle initial letter. And we're just going to we can't tell them apart. We're going to accept it. Like, it's fine. (laughs) This is a whole other dude. Like, I don't even know. I can barely tell these these middle name and initials apart. Um. I feel like presidents and like old white men, I feel the same way about just like white male open mic comics where it was like, I can't remember your name and all your material is the same. So like, I can't, I can't tell, I don't. If anything, that's what killed Warren G. Harding. He was like, they're not going to be able to tell me apart from all these dudes on trial. And he just died from (laughs) stress. Um, But yeah, so the studio heads were less enthusiastic about the idea of Hayes and this committee, but they agreed to make the code the rule of the industry, kind of like a pay to play kind of thing. They're also in a place where they don't have tons of money to fight rules or be brought into court for something that they're trying to put out. You know what I mean? That's me speculating, but like thinking in a business sense where it's like, yeah, dude, whatever you guys say we can put out, we'll do, you know? Yeah. So from 1930 to 1934, the production um, code was only slightly effective in um, fighting um, for federal censorship. However, things came to a head in 1934 with widespread 
threats of Catholic boycotts of immoral movies, um, as well as reduced funding from Catholic financiers, such as A.P. Giannini from Bank of America. So they should be judging anyone. But they, the fact that it all ties that back to money where this guy is a rich Catholic man who pays money to make movies be made. So if you want his money, you have to make movies that he approves of. Um, This is always the way it is. It's, it's so difficult to like, like when you look at the ins and outs of Hollywood and the industry and whatever, it's like at the end of the day, people are like, why isn't there more diversity? Why isn't there more this or that? And it's like, cause someone has to fund it and they get to say what happens. Exactly. Like it's taken us a while to get, you know, ethically diverse and, um, ethically, (laughs) ethnically, ethnically diverse, you know, main characters and things like that. But there was definitely a guy rich enough decades ago to make his own sequel to easy rider. So it's like, yeah, people have been (laughs) making all kinds of stuff that didn't need to be made because they thought it was cool. Um, but yeah, so because of very rich, um, religious people being the the private backers to some of these movies being made, it started kind of having a bigger effect because also Hayes was for the committee seeking out the most powerful religious people in America at the time. So like the head of the Catholic church, the head of the Presbyterian church, he's like um, intentionally and openly consulting these religious leaders and being like, this is who I'm asking to see what's okay for TV. And people are just eating it up, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, so in 1934 to deal with the inappropriate industry personnel alongside the code in terms of everything that happened with fatty Hayes created a list of 117 names of performers, um, whose personal lives he thought made them unfit to appear in films. Oh, wow. Um, What a dick. His philosophy must might best be summed up by a statement he reportedly made to a movie director, which was when you make a woman cross her legs in the films, maybe you don't need to see how she can cross them and stay within the law, but how low she can cross them and still be interesting. What? That's a very specific and confusing quote about women's leg crossing. Like, is he a crossing guard? Like, what are you talking about? Like, he's because I feel like he's also um, accidentally giving a premonition to basic instinct. (laughs) But it sounds like he's basically saying instead of being so focused on what it looks like to a woman cross her legs. Like maybe you can just zoom in on her ankles and show that legs are being crossed. Like a less is more kind of analogy, but a really, really bad one. (laughs) It's just like such a specific kink to be like, if a woman crosses her legs and we film it, what is that saying to children? Like what, what? What? <laughs> and that's the thing too is I don't think at this point they're thinking about children. They're thinking about adults. They're thinking about men and what in it can set them off and whether or not you should be triggering people to behave inappropriately. They're I don't think that they're even necessarily thinking about children looking at these at this and point. this is why we can't wear tank tops in the workplace. Yes. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> 
Because a lot of these um, still at this point, I think, are shorts. Like, not at this point, because now we're into full length, but they started as shorts before movies. So they were like fun little commercials for adults to watch before, you know, a film that was also for adults. Um, so I think, well, and you know, I actually take it back. Cause yeah, there are some feature films that are for children at this point, but I feel like with fatty and everything that happened that they also were like, women can't be too sexual for anyone. We cannot just have women be this sexual. Cause it's just going to set someone off to see these visuals like this all the time. Yeah. Um, OG victim blaming. So a, <laughs> A perfect animated example of this uh, that is used often for the Hayes Code is Betty Boop. Uh, So I do want to talk about Betty Boop because part of this is not her fault. None of this is her fault because she's an animated character. (laughs) I was going to say, I was like... I'm pretty sure Betty Boop is innocent of all charges in whatever bullshit. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. But um, it's... A a specific, I'm going to explain what I mean right now in terms of her evolution as a character, because one of right. the things that people love to joke about is that Betty Boop used to fuck a dog and oh that God. like that was one what? of her main things. Yes. In terms of her being one of the people they are characters on a second on the most. Jordan, did Keith used to date her? <laughs> I don't. Oh, no. Are we bringing that here? Here's the thing. If I don't know what is happening, and I'm very worried about catching up on uh, Keith and the Not A Show episodes. What? It's a long bit, but Keith used to date someone who was interested in dogs sometimes. A little bit. And it's a very long time ago. I don't really like how you're saying the word interested right now. You shouldn't like how she's saying the word interested. What? It's bad. It's very bad. What? No, don't like it. I refuse this tangent. Anyways, go listen to old episodes of Mean Boys or This Is Not a Show if you would like more information. That's all I'm going to say here. Actually, I don't think they talk about it on uh, This Is Not a Show. I think that that's specifically... I think it's all on Mean Boys. Yeah, it's on Mean Boys era. Oh, my goodness. Well, Betty Boop is... A falsely accused of being one of Keith's ex-girlfriends because <laughs> she actually started off drawn as a dog. Betty Boop oh. was a dog. And her and um she was the girlfriend of another Fleischer character named Bimbo. And then they made Betty a human and just left Bimbo a dog and were like, they can still fuck. It's fine. So that's why I said it's not her fault because she started as a dog and then they made her a human and didn't change any of the storylines. Oh yeah. I'm looking at old images of her and she has like ears and stuff. Like she was fully a dog. She was a dog. So later they try to say that she, you know, has these forms of bestiality and all this stuff, but it's because she has these flirty um, interactions with Bimbo because he was her boyfriend before she was human. So, um, for example, in the short, um, is my palm red? Betty is shown as a child. So this is an example of another thing that they had to censor other than bestiality was, um, in the short, is my palm red? Betty is shown as a child between the ages of four and five bathing in the nude and another short bamboo aisle. There's a sequence in which she dances topless, 
um, just with a leg covering her breasts and a grass skirt. And um, it was reused for a cameo appearance in an old episode of Popeye the Sailor as an edit. So these are some things that they used to do that they either have edited versions of or that they changed a little bit. So it sounds like some bizarre Kafka-esque adventure where like there's just this nice dog family and one girl is a sexy dog and then one day she wakes up a human but she still wants to love her dog family and now everyone's upset about it. <laughs> it's metamorphosis. <laughs> boop 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 <be-doo>, boop. <laughs> 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 so those um everything I just listed are examples of some pre haze code uh Betty Boop cartoons. So wow. Um, at following the enforcement of the haze code, Betty's clothing was redesigned. Uh, all future shorts portrayed her with a longer dress that did not emphasize her phys- that did not emphasize her physique and sexuality as much. Later shorts were less surreal in nature and she's portrayed as a more rational adult. She's drastically turned down from a sultry, carefree star of the jazz era into a more family-friendly secondary character. And this uh, led to a quick decline of her... You Popularity? Know, be- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A quick decline in the series overall. Um, having her only reappear... Uh, in the late 80s and a few things, including the a genre defining who framed Roger Rabbit. So Hayes kind of killed Betty Boop because people like to watch dirty stuff. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Is Betty Boop the OG waifu? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> uh, I mean, no, maybe. the OG waifu is the, uh, the fisherman's wife. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> I just bit when you said it, I was like, what? Oh, I remember that. It's so funny. Uh, so yeah, so that is where I'm going to stop on this episode, but there is far more information about adult animation on the way. So Hell thank yeah, you all dude. so much for listening to me today. Um, thank you for if that. You... <laughs> yeah, no problem. I was very... Um, not nervous in a bad way, but you know, it's like you guys normally do the researching. So you did great. Oh, you for so being a great audience. <laughs> it is fun. It's fun researching and learning stuff about something that you already like a lot. So that part's pretty sick. It um, totally is. But yeah, if you want to make sure that you don't miss part two when it comes out next week, uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pavantgarde, P O D. V-A-N-T-E-G-A-R-D-E. Um, and then you can also find our Facebook group there's under no the same e, name. There's no E after the T. It's Wait, what did I do? You said P-O-D. Oh, did I spell it wrong? <laughs> yeah. I hope I didn't spell it wrong on the last one. No, Whoops. you didn't. You didn't. Oh, I didn't? Okay, good. Okay. As long as I only spell it wrong once. Okay, follow us at P-O-D-V-A-N-T-G-A-R-D-E. <laughs> One E um, on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And then we also have a Facebook group of the same name. And there will be a link to our Patreon in the comments for this episode or the description of this episode. Yeah. And if you guys want to send us a kinescope or whatever kind of scope that you use to clean out your tub, uh, you can send that to us. (laughs) 
in real life because we have a P.O. box now. Uh, that is 1001 <laughs> Fremont <laughs> Avenue, number 366. You can send it in real life because Andrea has a clog she needs to take care of? <laughs> Look, hey, here's the thing. I want to make animations. Hair is nine feet long. But I also need my tub to <laughs> That be is clean. true. I didn't think about that. <laughs> my babysitter, as a child, my babysitter used, yelled at my mom and told her she needed to cut my hair because she would get my hair caught in her toes in the carpeting. Oh, and my, my mom God. was just like, I think you just need to vacuum your house. <laughs> yeah. Or what? I had an abusive babysitter. She also left me outside in freezing cold weather and put childproof locks on the door so I couldn't get inside and my hands turned blue. Anyway, childcare is fun. Uh, love that. Uh, anyway, if you want to send us anything cool and fun, like a wig for my super long hair, you can send that at 1001 Fremont Avenue, number 366, South Pasadena, California, 91031. Andrea, that was dark oh yeah sorry my childhood was real bad still not as bad as jordan's but real bad bad things happened i'm sorry to laugh but that was just so dark i know andrea just sneaking in some childhood hypothermia for the outro you know just whatever it was chill like literally <laughs> but i'm okay <laughs> Okay, we're having fun. This is a comedy podcast, you guys, okay? <laughs> we're having a real good time, okay? Just like a little bit of child abuse, but it's whatever. We've grown past it, and we're just happy with our dogs now. Our dogs that are definitely not drunk, okay? <laughs> <laughs> our totally sober dogs. He's so sober right now. Wait, you Jordan, can find did Katrina at Wait, Katrina Savad, yeah. and you can find oh, Andrea. I was waiting for Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna do. No, your honestly, that's mouth. perfect. Jordan did mine. Yeah, no, I don't care. Good okay. Job. You can find me at Andrea Gazetta on Instagram, at Sundress Comic on Twitter, at AndreaGazetta.com if you want dope shit, uh, or my Patreon, AndreaGazetta.com slash, wait, fuck, Patreon.com slash AndreaGazetta. <laughs> I know how words work, okay? <laughs> now it's Jordan's turn. <laughs> wait, so I do this to Keith and he fucking hates it, uh, but... You know, you can follow Katrina, our good friend who you know from the podcast, at uh, Katrina Savad. <laughs> and you can also, she's got a Netflix special. Uh, you guys might know her as the uh, feature at The Laugh Factory. Um, you know, you can just, you can find her everywhere, you guys. Just look her up. She's very funny. Um, wait, wait, who? Katrina. Are you making up stuff about me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna say, did Katrina doesn't have a Netflix special? Do you? Did I you not tell did. us? I have a special. It is not. It's not anywhere yet. I just have a special. Oh, I. But I like recorded, that you made it. I that. thought you recorded a Netflix special. But also, Jordan, you're not a comic. I thought you were just <laughs> roasting me on how it's not a Netflix special, no. and I thought that was hilarious. I, I thought you were just making up fake things for me, and I was like, oh wow, okay, I didn't know we were doing this. This is a real. This is not a show episode. Wow, okay. <laughs> 
Jordan was just trying so to be nice, but she doesn't know what Katrina's actually, her actual credits. So that makes me so yes, happy. That's exactly what it happened. Yes. <laughs> that it's was the like, best. It's like when your mom is like, my daughter's on TV. And you're like, no, I'm not, mom. I'm just on YouTube. It's fine. Like, just, yes. no, I'm oh not. Oh, my God, you guys. I really am the grandma of this podcast. <laughs> Like, we're so She's proud of you, honey. <laughs> Knitting, trying to figure out technology. <laughs> I am on Instagram at the Goonie Bird Crafts. No, the Goonie Bird Crafts. My personal is Goonie Bird Crafts. And I have an Etsy where I sell puzzles and blankets and stuff. Thank you. Hell yeah, dude. I like yeah. Katrina, I'm so sorry that I didn't know your credits. Oh, don't be sorry just, at all. That's way better. I love I all just of trying these. to be Thank nice. you all so much. Because <laughs> I do that to Keith I all think, the time. No, and also I feel like anyone that listens to this, like our podcast at this point, knows that you 100% meant that genuinely. But I was over here like, I haven't done any of that stuff. What is she talking about? Um... But thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Pavant Garde. And we love you. We love you. We love you. Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today. Because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound, and because this is a sound-based medium, we have asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, We had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings, and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, And part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgard. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um, We're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, And as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering art, uh, like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now, um, especially around NFTs, especially around AI. And I think it's really interesting and worth talking about, but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content. Um, I would also say that in terms of the time cost, you know, Katrina, Jordan, and I all are supporting ourselves outside of this show. This show takes a lot of time. I'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching. We're buying books. Um, Katrina's editing the time codes. She's building our website. She's doing all our social media. Jordan is also researching her own episodes. And my goal for the Patreon is is just that it can become something that 
you know, we're not looking to get rich. I don't think that's ever been our goal. I don't think we ever think that could be our goal. But what I'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the Patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show. My experience uh, with Cult Podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, We love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys